0: Hello, and welcome to Think Hard, the podcast where two trained philosophers think hard about the real world. I'm Danielle Lasusa. I'm a philosophical coach, and I teach at Portland Community College in Portland, Oregon. And with me today, as always, is my magnificent co-host, Jose Muniz.
1: Hey, everybody. I'm Jose Muniz, and I teach at Lehman College in the Bronx.
0: I am was thinking back to an episode that we did a long time ago. We were talking about identity. And at the end of that episode, I just said, I believe more with the Buddhist idea of the self. And you said, well, I know nothing about that, so I guess we're at an impasse. I do not. So today, I thought that we would talk about this Buddhist conception of the self, but thinking specifically about the self over time and if there is identity that lasts over time. So, I want to start by asking you a question.
1: Sure. That's what I'm here for.
0: Like, think back to when you were like six years old. That's hard. <laughs> I know it was a very, it's very about 20 long years ago. time ago. 20 years. <laughs> so, th- I know it was just ages and ages and ages ago for you. But <laughs> think back to when you were six. Do you have memories from that time in your life?
1: Well, I would have been in first grade, right? That's when kids go to first grade. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I remember first grade.
0: If you look back at pictures of yourself from that time. Do you think that that person who was the six-year-old Jose, are you the same person now? Are you the same person or are you a different person?
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by that. Sure, I've changed in many ways. I have more facial hair, (laughs) (laughs) but I do think I am. Yeah, I think I'm the same person. I think there is a link between that Six-year-old child and this 43-year-old man.
0: Okay, so you think there's a link. What's the nature of that link? What do you think? Your body's different. And actually, they say, that like, all of your cells regenerate every seven years or something. Mm-hmm. If that's true, then there actually are not a whole lot of physical parts of you that are the same.
1: Oh, there's probably no physical part of me that's the same.
0: Right. So there's no physical part of you that's the same and you've learned a lot, you think about the world differently, you've had a whole bunch of different experiences, you look different. So, like, how do you identify with that six-year-old
1: kid? That's actually a very good question. Long history and philosophy mm. of this question. I'm not going to cheat by just using some stock answers. I want to give an honest answer, right? This All is right. this pre-theoretical thing before you get started. Yeah. I would say it's probably two things. One, yes, every single physical part of my body has changed, but... It's changed gradually. Mm -hmm. And so like if all the cells in my body changed at once, I would have a much harder time saying I'm the same person. But because it's a few cells now and then a few cells later that it seems that, you know, I kind of kept it together. Mm -hmm. But, you know, clearly that's problematic. And there's actually a famous philosophical problem about that. Mm -hmm. So that's one answer. And then the second answer I would probably give is Memory. (sighs) <sighs> yeah, I remember stuff from like last week and then last week I remembered stuff from two years ago and I kind of have a chain of memories that connects me to these people that at any one moment was Jose. Mm. And that's also problematic because my memory could be flawed or, Mm -hmm. you know, all sorts of reasons. But if you asked me, honestly, why do I still point to that little boy in the picture and say, that's me? It's because I think the changes I've gone through have happened gradually. And two, because I have this chain of memories.
0: A lot of us look at those pictures and we think, oh, that's me. Mm-hmm. That gives rise in us to this sense of a self or some sort of essence to ourselves yeah. that remains the same over time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what you want to call it, right? It's your spirit or your soul or your somehow your essence that persists over time. And what I want to suggest is that, in fact, that's false, that that is just an illusion. I think there is no permanent self over time. In fact, when you look back at that kid in the picture, there is certainly a relationship between your current self and that past self, but in fact, that you are not actually the same. There's similarity and we mistake that as sameness.
1: Wow. Okay. I love this. Yeah.
0: So what's your first impression of that?
1: I think it's very different. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say I disagree with it virulently but I can have an open mind to it. Okay. So I would say, I believe I'm the same person, but I admit I have problems figuring out a justified way of saying that I'm the same person. So that's probably why I have such an open mind to this other thing.
0: Right, because the first question is, on what basis are you the same person? Yeah. What is the thread? If in fact your body is different, Your experiences are different. Your conscious mind is different. Your thought patterns are different. Your ways of viewing the world may be different. Maybe your eyesight has gotten worse or your hearing has gotten worse or better or who knows what has happened. And all of these things have changed over time. So the question immediately becomes, well, like, what is the thread that connects this to that?
1: So let me ask you this. Let's say tomorrow you go to work, Mm -hmm. get out of the house, you head to that thing. What's that thing you use to get around? I
0: don't know, a car. Car.
1: So you get to the car. And as you get in the car, I'm broke. So I rob you.
0: Uh-huh. I rob you. Okay. I'm ready. And
1: then, like, it takes the cops, you know, a couple months to find me. And then all of a sudden there's a trial. And then the jury convicts me. And then I go up to the judge and I'm like, judge, clearly a horrible thing happened. But that wasn't me. Does the Buddhist conception, what you're saying right now, mm Does that get me off? Because I just want to be clear about what these people are saying.
0: Well, I mean, that's another question about responsibility and sort of ethical responsibility, which brings us into a slightly different part of the worldview. I think for the Buddhists, they'd certainly believe in karma, the idea that the actions have consequences in the future, but they don't necessarily have to in that conception of consequences, maintain that there is a self. It's not necessarily the person that committed the crime doesn't have to be essentially in terms of essence, the same person that gets punished for the crime, and yet there still is a link, there's enough of a causal link between them that karma plays out.
1: So what's this causal link thing? Because then someone might say, well, yeah. And so how do I pick out myself in the picture? Well, there are these causal links. Mm-hmm. And little Jose took an exam until he got into high school. And high school Jose took an exam. He got into college. And all of a sudden I go through that causal link chain. What makes that different? I agree with you. Like the responsibility question, that's too big. And that's some other thing. Mm-hmm. But if I can causally link carjacking Jose before the judge after getting arrested Jose uh-huh. what is to stop me from doing that from like second grade Jose to me
0: well i think that the buddhist would say that there is a kind of relationship between them but it's tough because so much of the original buddhist texts are written in metaphor right they're not like <laughs> they're not like doing right, expository essays but one way that has been helpful i guess for me in thinking about it is okay so there's this story of let's say you have a guy who's going to eat his lunch. He brings a lantern over to the top of a, a house in a village, and all the houses have these like thatch roof. And he's eating his lunch, and the lantern tips over, and the, the house catches fire. Mm. Well, the fire then spreads from one end of the street across all the roofs to the other end of the street. Mm-hmm. And the Buddhists would say, well, look, the flames on the far end of the street are not the same flames. They're not essentially the same stuff as the flames at the near end of the street, but there is a connection between them. And I think for the Buddhist that is the way of thinking about the connection, that, Actions have consequences. It's like when you hit one billiard ball with another billiard ball, that potential energy moves through. And the first billiard ball is not the second one, but there certainly is a sense of action and reaction that pushes along things in the universe. And so for the self, current De Jose has been kind of energetically pushed along by all the previous versions of yourself. All right. Does that make any sense at all?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. So I guess what they would say is you shouldn't think of a person as this single piece of stuff Mm -hmm. that exists over time. You're just what you are, and there can be connections over time. So what's persisting over time isn't the stuff, Jose. It's the connections to other things. And so over several years, there isn't a single Jose, but there is relationships to moments. Right.
0: Yes, exactly. And if the self is changing at every moment, right, then that relationship to each moment is going to be slightly different than the one before. And so there is nothing sort of essential that continues through all of them. All right. Why is this important? So one, I think that this conception of looking at the world in a way, is very strange to a lot of us, right? Well, your first response is, well, that's weird. The kid in the picture, of course, is me. Why wouldn't Mm -hmm. that person be me? And yet, I want to suggest that this way of looking at the world kind of releases us from a lot of stuff that we get wrapped up in. And this is a little bit of the Buddhist idea of no self. This is like one of the key features of Buddhist theory is that there is no separate, permanent self that exists over time. And that when you recognize this, that in fact... You become enlightened. So the question is, well, why? Why would that be? Mm -hmm. What's your sense of it? What could this do for you, this idea that there is no self that exists over time, that in fact, you're a different person now than you were when you hijacked the car or when you were six? and
1: Excuse me, carjacked.
0: Carjacked. (laughs) Or when you were learning to ride a bike when you were six or whatever.
1: Just like they say in Frozen, let it go. (laughs) I want to just say right now, I don't believe this Buddhist thing.
0: <sighs> okay. So I'm
1: still open to being convinced. I don't believe it. But what I would say that it stands out to me, if it's true, is this idea that I don't have to be trapped or even carry the negative moments of my past because that is not me. That situation ain't me anymore. I have a relationship to it. Mm-hmm. There can be a energy that flows but fundamentally I would say and I might be misinterpreting what you've said so please correct me okay. I'm just what I am right now mm-hmm. the stuff of Jose is just the stuff that exists right now that past stuff or unfortunately that future stuff that Jose might be at some point those are projections like they're a story we I tell mm-hmm. kind of like that memory answer mm-hmm. I gave originally mm-hmm. but they're not actually me. It doesn't attach right to me right now. Mm -hmm. And I can have a perspective on it. I don't have to be held by the things that happened in the past or held by the things that might happen in the future.
0: Absolutely right. Yeah. I think that's like a (laughs) straight A. (laughs) I think that's one really, really important feature of all this is that, look, If, in fact, what we are right now is this particular instantaneous set of ideas, thoughts, and physical processes, then, in fact, that we're not connected to that past or that future in any substantive way. And the only way in which we are is the story that we tell about it. Mm -hmm. The story that we tell about it is what the Buddhists would call the ego. That idea that we have of who we are, what our life has been, what it will become, what our meaning in the world is, what our relationships to people and events in the past and future, all of that thing is just imaginary. It's just a story. And if you recognize that, that in fact you can live a life that doesn't keep you and your needs and your self at the center of it. You can just sort of let go of yourself as this hero of your own story and just (laughs) let the world be what it is. What do you think of that?
1: I like that. Again, and maybe this is unfair because, you know, I'm just rereading what I think instead of you know what they're presenting. But I think it reminds me a lot of the memory story. People's memories are fallible, mm-hmm. but also people's memories are creative. Mm-hmm. I was not bullied in high school. Actually high school was the best time of my life, which is probably sad in a certain way. <laughs> I had a great high school, but like I could imagine someone who's like really bullied very hard in high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I could see them carrying that for the rest of their lives because they see they are the same person and they've been hurt this way and they carry it. And I think, clearly you can also look at that bullying when you're in high school and creatively change what that means and say like it made me stronger Mm -hmm. or it made me more empathetic to people who are hurt Mm -hmm. and it's the same kind of memories of stuff but you can be creative about it and that can really change how you feel or how you think about yourself today on a obviously a much grander scale if the buddhist is right about this and we really are just the person we are right now then you have an even greater chance of telling the story, having the imagination that is actually one true to the metaphysics of the world, right? Like if they're right about this, then you Mm -hmm. can have understanding of yourself that's right. Mm -hmm. But two, one that serves you in a certain way, one that frees you from constantly replaying negative things, just letting go of it, being apart from it in a certain way.
0: It's like being able to see the matrix for what it is and recognizing that it's all just kind of a lie and you can do what you want in it. It's just a story. It's not anything more than that. And in doing that, it's very existentialist in a way, right? You get to write whatever kind of story is helpful for you. You can reinterpret your past. You can imagine a new future. You can do things differently. You're not bound. It's like a fresh start. You can always have a fresh start. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's one really important part of it.
1: But here's where I think... I have some difficulties.
0: Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> All
1: right. You're not the only one telling stories. There's like a society. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so if your family's telling the story of you being the same person and the government's telling the story right. of you being the same citizen... Yeah. And etc. 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 Yeah. I think it gets a lot harder to see yourself as this free being that can pick and choose what you will take on and let go of. So it's the social angle. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think an individual might be able to do it, but how can you be distinct? from your past self or your future self if you have these larger groups outside of you reinforcing particular stories.
0: And that's part of why people spend their entire life meditating, trying to come to this Buddhist truth of Mm -hmm. no self, because there is this entire social structure upholding the sense of permanence and upholding the sense of you commit a carjacking today, you go to prison tomorrow, and you're held responsible for that. And I think for the Buddhist, that would say, well, yeah, but government is also a fiction. Money is a fiction. You know, like all of these other things that we've imagined as true are just collective inventions of humanity. And that's fine and good. And they do certain things for us in this society we have constructed and they keep order in a certain way. But there's nothing, again, there's no essence to it. It doesn't have to be this way. There's nothing about it that written in the clouds somewhere that in fact, all of it is an invention. And so that Social concern, I think, is a practical one. It's the one of, okay, well, how can the individual practically do this? And that's part of why some Buddhists, when they're seeking enlightenment, go live on a monastery. They give up earning money. They separate from their families. They go into the woods and try and do it on their own because it's, frankly, easier to do that. It's easier, yeah. So I think that that's a practical concern and doesn't necessarily impact the truth of it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great answer. If the Buddhist is right about ourselves, whatever we are, that stuff is only the stuff you are at a particular specific moment right now in the present, mm-hmm. which is what I assume that they would say, then they're just right about it. Even if it's hard for us to understand it, even if we get it right. wrong in the same way that two plus two is four, even if you get first grade math wrong, that mm-hmm. doesn't change the fact that two plus two is four.
0: Right. Good. And even if you live in a society that tells you that two plus two is five, the society's just wrong. Right. So I'm going to ask a question, and if this leads us down a totally different path, we can nix it. But you said you, that you just fundamentally think that this way of viewing the world is wrong. Do you want yeah. to say anything about that?
1: So I have two things to say about that. One is, it makes a lot of sense to me. I can see how it's good, but I worry that the reason I can see how it is good and why it makes sense to me in many ways is because I'm interpreting it in my own language Mm. and that I'm in fact not being accurate or precise or fair to what that person believes. Mm. I wonder how much of this works in my mind simply because I believe in existentialism. So yeah, of course you're always free. So how could you be tied down to the person you were when you were in first grade, right? Like that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. How does it translate into my language? And so does that make it fair, right? Mm -hmm. And then the second reason I have a problem with it is... It seems very cheap, but it's something that I have struggled with in understanding Buddhism for a long time, which is how long is a moment? Yeah. So is it like a nanosecond? Is -hmm. it a year? Is it a day? Mm -hmm. And the inability to really have an understanding of what we mean by the present seems to me to make it difficult to say the stuff that you are is only in the present. Mm -hmm. So those are my two main difficulties with this.
0: Well, the first one, I think that you can give yourself a pass on. Even if you put it in your own language, I'm probably also not doing it the justice that someone else who is more learned in Buddhism could do. I'm putting it in my own language. You're putting it in yours. We're understanding it as best we can. I'd give yourself a pass on that. The issue of the, what counts as a moment, why does that matter?
1: What do you mean? I'd like to know when I am. (laughs) (laughs) I think Uh, it makes a difference.
0: Well, I mean, why? Why does it make a difference?
1: Because it will help me to distinguish between what is real and what isn't real. Mm. You think of the life of a relationship. And there's the moments when you meet someone and you're nervous. And then there's the moments when you're excited because she likes you or he likes you. Mm -hmm. Then there's the moment when there's all the canoodling and the lovey loviness, And then there's the fighting and the wild recriminations and accusations. And then there's the breakup.
0: (laughs) You've given us some insight into your dating life. Thank you for that.
1: (laughs) So at the end of this long weekend, we're Okay. So there's this (laughs) lifespan of a relationship, right? Yeah. And I think one thing you might say is what's real is the present. And I should not be trapped by the attraction I had when I first met this person. What's real is how I feel right now, how I'm being treated right now, what I think about this relationship right now. But if that is just an instant, well, I could be swayed in many ways and everything else is an illusion. But if we have a longer period of time where I feel one way, but then I reflect and I, kind of think, well, maybe this isn't the right answer. I'm just being swayed by my random emotions. Mm -hmm. Then I might have a completely different view and other things are illusionary. And so I admit right off the bat, the whole question of what is a moment is a, it it sounds very cheap. It's what like a high school senior who wants to be a smart ass would say in a lecture about Buddhism. I just happen to think it's important (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because... It changes how you understand what's real versus what is the story you tell yourself. And also, it's kind of important for guiding you. I think knowing what it is that is real and genuine is going to be what guides you in many ways in a system that doesn't offer a lot of guidance, right?
0: So that's interesting. I think... This is where it's going to like get a little intense. So uh, I think okay. <laughs> I think the answer to that question is that for the Buddhists, the more you can pay attention to the shifting experiences and processes of the self as constantly changing. And most of the time people do this in meditation, like meditate quietly and you observe the shifts Mm -hmm. in the sensations of the body, maybe even in the processes of the body, in the thoughts and the mind state, and you just experience the... Changing nature of your current state. And in so doing, I think you gain a deeper understanding of the self as constantly shifting. And for the Buddhists, because they think the self and the rest of the world are not distinct or separate, you also have a insight, a direct experience with the shifting nature of reality as constantly changing from moment to moment. So, the question of, well, when, when can I say now? What is now? No, not now. Mm-hmm. Now, right? Like, that you're never going to get there because maybe it is a nanosecond, maybe it's less, maybe it's just, it's like, as long as it takes for one of your neurons to fire, maybe less. But the point is that Everything, all of our thoughts, because they are slower... They take time. They're all going to be inventions of the sort, right? And that reality and the reality of the self just opens up as this, like, interchanging, always-moving processes. And to say that we want to be able to freeze it at any moment and say, here is the slice of time in which I really am real right now is just another human attempt to insert a real self where there isn't one.
1: I like that answer. I think that answer is very informative, very informative. Much more informative than my shitty criticism was, right? Like I think (laughs) what you've said right now is a lot of meat. So let me attack this meat now. Okay. I worry that saying you should pay attention to yourself over time Mm -hmm. is a backdoor reintroduction of an essence. There is a you paying attention to something. So that's just one. Mm -hmm. And second I'm not so down on the narratives we tell. I think narratives can be bad, and I think they can be good. I'm neutral on them. I think the stories we tell and the way we interpret things isn't necessarily bad. Like It helps us get by. And again, sometimes we tell ourselves bad stories, and sometimes our narratives get in the way. And like, obviously, I want to get rid of those. But I'm not so down on them as this account seems to make. So you can answer either of them, or
0: the first one was a it's a backdoor reintroduction of an essence like if i'm gonna sit down and observe myself
1: over time the shifting yeah
0: right there must be an observer that is doing the observing yeah. I think that the Buddhist answer would be simply, that is operating with our everyday conception of the self as a me, like I look out into the world, I eat, I think, I make judgments, I think therefore I am, said Descartes, like we have this sense of like, there must be an I, and the I must exist, and the I is the one doing the observing. And for the Buddhists, they would just say, well, there is observation. And again, this is like our language can't capture the truth of reality. So we still use language. We use the word I and we talk about me and we talk about my ego as a thing that exists insofar as I'm in relationship in a society and I tell a story about myself or there is a story told about myself, right? The language is inappropriate for understanding the way the world actually works. And the Buddhists actually do make a big deal about this linguistic problem. So for example, there's a um, famous... Primary source, there's a king who goes to visit a monk to get like an answer about the true nature of the self. And the monk says, Now king, tell me how did you get here today? And he says, Well, I took my chariot. And he says, Well, what part is the chariot? Are the wheels the chariot? Is the yoke the chariot? Is the frame the chariot? Are the, you know, reins the chariot? What where is the chariot? And he says, Well, no. I mean the chariot is just a word that I give to all of those parts and pieces put together in a particular order. I give it the word chariot, but there's no like essence of chariot there. There's just a particular set of conditions and materials in a certain structure. And for the Buddhists, the word I is the same way. It is the collection of physical and sensory and conscious processes that are in a particular order for a particular set of time but there is no eye underneath it in the same way that there's no chariot underneath its parts.
1: How does observation work? How does paying attention work in this?
0: The physical processes and mental processes observe the sensations of the self in the same way that they would observe any other part of the world, right? Like there's a brain and there's input and data and processing that Mm -hmm. happens, but there's nothing essential beyond those things.
1: And it just notices something right now.
0: Yes, it notices and it pieces how's together. How does work is what I mean? It, maybe there is a noticing and there is a memory, an invention of a memory, uh-huh. and a story that gets linked together about how those memories are linked and what they mean and how this particular experience of a self and a body is connected with those things. And it's all just this invention.
1: So how's that different than when I made a story about my memory of the picture.
0: It's not. If when you look at yourself when you're six and you say, okay, Mm -hmm. that's me. If by me, you mean a set of processes by which this current existed for that particular part of time and this particular set of processes identifies with that one in a way that is somehow causally linked right like that energetic pushing along that we Mm -hmm. talked about but like that's not how we really think about it like when we say that's me what we typically mean is me and that six-year-old person are identical in a way there is an identity there Right?
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So then it really comes down to whether or not we are identical with ourselves over time. Right. And the Buddha says no.
0: No. If you are sitting down to observe, it's just a self-observing sensations. And by that self, we just mean a series of processes, physical and mental, observing its own physical and mental processes. Do you subscribe to this? Yeah, I think I do. I mean, I do, even though I'm still... I'm still in the matrix. I'm not enlightened. I haven't experienced it for myself. I don't believe it at a visceral level, but I think I believe it at an intellectual level.
1: And you don't have any problem with believing this and at the same time believing in hope. You see no conflict in it.
0: Yeah, because I think hope is just like a looking towards the future and it's telling a particular story. I mean, I think that for the Buddhists, they would say, look, the Dalai Lama has spent his whole life fighting for the freedom of Tibet he lives in the world he understands that there are nation states and oppression and like we need to act for the freedom of all people even though all of that is simply part of the matrix but if you're gonna live in it you might as well do good in it even though the truth of the matter is that it's all just like a miasma of stuff moving around
1: On an atomic level, I think you might even have, I mean, I I don't want to get into the science because I'm not a scientist, but on the atomic level, that's certainly a case for that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're just atoms.
0: Yeah. Matter and energy changing shape.
1: I'm just more comfortable with larger conceptual and narrative stories that are abstracted from atoms. Whereas I think the Buddhist is saying, let's just be honest to the fact that there is just no solid thing behind the metaphysical door.
0: So to get to your second point this idea that like stories are bad, I don't think the Buddhists think stories are bad necessarily. They're just not true. That's really the only thing. They're just not true. That like, yes, we can tell a story about hope for the future. Or we can tell a story about why we should free to bed. Or we can tell a story about like why we should or shouldn't go to prison because of something we did before. But those are all stories that we tell. Mm-hmm. And they're all inventions of ours. And it doesn't make them bad or good. It just makes them inventions. And I think the, for the Buddhists, it's they're just like, just be clear about that. When you understand that these are just inventions, you can have a different relationship to them because you understand that they're pliable and changeable and malleable and that we are not... It's like the existentialists, like, don't have the spirit of seriousness about it all. You can treat it with more playfulness and freedom. And it doesn't have to be about your life's purpose or your essence or your it's not about any of that. It's just like, well, there's a miasma of stuff moving around. We might as well do good things with it while we're here.
1: Why? Why do good things with it?
0: Well, right. And so that that gets to the question of Buddhist ethics, right? And I think the Buddhists would say that we should try and spread compassion and the ending of suffering wherever we can. And that the ending of suffering comes with a release from these stories and a release from this concern about the self.
1: So then the stories are bad.
0: Well, not necessarily. You know, it's the very first thing you said about, like, if I'm not connected to my past or to my future, there is a kind of release there there is a freedom and I'm mm-hmm. trapped by those stories and so for the Buddhists, yeah those stories can trap us. Let's say, for example, you get sick, or you get you know a diagnosis of cancer. If, in fact, we are really committed to this story of who I am, what my life means, what it's supposed to be, if I get a diagnosis, then it's like, why me? This wasn't supposed to happen to me. What does this mean for my life? What will I do with myself? What about my kids? What about my family? What about all of the dreams and hopes that I had for the future? I'm angry. I don't want this to happen. And And that's because we're so connected to that idea, that ego, that invention of the self that we've created in our minds, that when disease and death, which is inevitable for all of us, rears its head, we suddenly cling really hard to that idea of this permanent self that has to have and be in the world in a certain way. And for the Buddhists, if you can relax your grip on that, and some claim that you can even free your grip on it completely and really just... To see it as an illusion that when that cancer diagnosis or stolen car or sick child or whatever it is, these things that befall us, this pain that is inevitable, it doesn't necessarily have to cause this deep sense of unfairness and this suffering that we feel when we feel like we are important and these things shouldn't happen to us.
1: I don't see anything in that Buddhist account That is fatal to the argument. I don't think there's anything like logically inconsistent. I don't even think there's anything empirically inconsistent. I do think it has a problem with language. Mm. I think it has a problem with concepts. But that's because we, I mean, I assume it's because we're Westerners that speak a Western language. I I imagine like in the Buddhist language, it makes a lot more sense. Mm. So I don't see anything fatal with that. So That's one. And two, I definitely see that my notion of a persistent self over time can often run into the danger of thinking I'm fixed in a certain way Mm. and that that could trap me. Mm -hmm. And I can see how the Buddhist conception would free me from that. So that's the two good things I see. Okay. But the third is, I don't know why that's not open to me in general. If I were to say, yes, I'm the same person, but I don't have to stay the same. I don't have to stay unhappy about something. I don't have to stay really happy about something and then get sad in the future. Like, I don't see why it's necessary. But I'll say, I don't see anything fatally wrong with it, and mm-hmm. I see how it saves us from a danger. So ultimately, unfortunately, I think it comes down to whether or not they're right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So if they're mm-hmm. right metaphysically, then they're right. just right metaphysically.
0: Right. And to that point, I think in my mind, it seems to me that they're right metaphysically because I don't understand why the self would be different than anything else in the world.
1: Because humans are different than anything else in the world. <laughs>
0: well, Right. Well, so that's a different discussion, right? Like, based on
1: what? I haven't seen any bears building cities.
0: Yeah, but, like, that doesn't mean that, like... (laughs) That doesn't mean that human beings have, like, a different kind of stuff or essence than bears you know like i think for the buddhists they would say look we are matter and energy just like the rest of the world is matter and energy and like the chair is a chair and we use the word chair because it's matter and energy in a certain shape for a certain amount of time human beings are the same way we are matter and energy in a certain shape for a certain amount of time it's wildly consistent you don't have to introduce anything special to the metaphysics, the nature of reality, this is just how the world is. And we're part of the world. There's no need for a God. There's no need for a soul. There's no need for any extra metaphysical stuff. Mm. And it just seems very simple to me.
1: Yes. And one other thing I think is in its favor is that, and again, I'm not a scientist. I think there is a case to say, I could see how the atoms story works with this, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. Like I could see like, you know, we are just energy and atoms on an atomic level. So yeah, I could see that. All right. But then finally, (laughs) I don't think there's a self to chairs, (laughs) right? I don't think there's a self to trees or marble. So yeah, I would grant that easily. I do think... There is something special about human beings, that we are not just animals like any other animal. And maybe that's a chauvinism on my part. Mm-hmm. But if buying the Buddhist story requires me to say that human beings are just trees or animals, I think that would be a bridge too far for me.
0: Gosh, I have so many questions about that, but I feel like we, <laughs> we that's a different show that we have to ask. <laughs> Certainly, that would start us on a new conversation. But I guess my thing to think about is like, well, what makes us distinct and special? And is that distinct and special thing connected to this idea of the self lasting over time to our original point? Mm -hmm. And if so, like, where does that come from? Why does that exist? And perhaps it's connected to some of our other conversations that we've had about a theistic view of the world or, or what? I'm not sure what it's based on. But for me, it just seems much simpler and That is a mark in its favor, right? Occam's razor or whatever.
1: I think what you have said is certainly much simpler, but... In the end, for reasons I've just said, it comes down to whether or not their metaphysics is right. I don't think there's anything fatal to their argument. And if their metaphysics is right, it works. But it's also tied into things like karma and reincarnation that metaphysically are not simple. I'm not saying they're wrong or it doesn't happen, but they are certainly much more complicated metaphysical concepts. And so maybe the thin simpleness of this self part comes at the cost of thickerness and other concepts.
0: That might be true. And I think that there are probably those who could explain those other things better than I could. I've got my own theories about karma and reincarnation that I don't know lines up with the Buddhist orthodoxy. We'll have to bracket that other conversation for another show. But this conversation about whether the self exists through time i think i want to hear what our listeners have to say about this listeners do you have thoughts about whether or not the self exists over time are you the same kid that you were when you were six years old and if so why and if not why not please let us know come to our website thinkhardpodcast.com and you can leave us a comment or question there you can search our archives and find all of our other episodes as well Okay, we're going to talk about what we've been thinking about since our last episode. But before we do, we are going to talk about our sponsor today, which is Audible. So Audible has the largest library of audiobooks in the world. And one book that our listeners might be interested in per this conversation is called Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment by Robert Mm. Wright. And I actually listened to this audiobook and... I just thought it was really fascinating. You may not like it, Jose. It's got a lot of here's some psychology. Like here are all these Mm, like (laughs) here are all these experiments for why these Buddhist conceptions of the self actually bear out in the psychological and in the neurological even or cognitive understanding of how the self works. And I thought it was really persuasively written, and I highly recommend it. So Why Buddhism Was True. And if you don't want to listen to that audiobook, then you can listen to any of the other of thousands of audiobooks on Audible. And right now you can listen to that book or any other for free. If you go to thinkhardpodcast.com slash Audible, you can get one free audiobook to start. After 30 days, you get an audiobook a month for fourteen ninety five a month. Then you get 30% off the price of any additional audiobook purchases, and you can cancel at any time. And a member's books are theirs to keep even if they cancel. So again, that's thinkhardpodcast.com slash audible. thinkhardpodcast.com slash audible. Okay, Jose, what have you been thinking about since our last episode?
1: Danielle, I have been thinking about a very short piece in the latest New Yorker, The Lingering of Loss by Jill Lepore. Mm. So this is a little piece by Jill Lepore. Kind of a personal autobiographical piece where she talks about turning on a laptop that her friend had left her in her will. And it's really a story of going back into your memories of a loved one mm. and appreciating what a friendship meant to you over time so she talks about all the events that happened and she talks about her personality so her friend jane was really indecisive when buying something and so she talked about how hard it was for her to pick the laptop talked about the things she loved and what really stood out to me i mean obviously jill is an amazing staff writer for the new yorker but what mm. really stood out to me here is what it means to appreciate the life you've lived with another person when it isn't a family member or a romantic relationship. Mm. The living of a life with a friend is a very special thing. I think it's a thing many people miss. It's a very touching essay, and I recommend you all read it.
0: That sounds lovely. Yeah. Can you tell us again what it's called and where we'll find it?
1: The Lingering of Loss. It's online on The New Yorker, and it's written by Jill Lepore.
0: So often we we talk about that in terms of family members. So it's like Mm -hmm. people reading their like dead mother's journals or something. And uh, so it's pretty rare that people write about that in terms of friendship, but that sounds lovely.
1: So when you write about with family members, there's this weird hierarchy. So writing about your parents is always really a reflection of your childhood in some way, right? right. And uh, when you talk about romantic relationships, well, there's all that kind of romance stuff in the way. Talking about your living your life with your friend is a very weird thing yeah. because of the equality of friendship.
0: Right. And because of the like presence of it, right? It's not yeah. your childhood, but it's like your life right, right. now. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. Well, it sounds lovely. Thank you. So I have been thinking about a book that I just read, which I just so serendipitously happened across. I went to a conference in town here through an organization called Postpartum Support International. It was a trainings and conference here in Portland. And I found this book that I was so thrilled to find and have been just delighted by it. It's called Setting the Wire, A Memoir of Postpartum Psychosis by Sarah C. Townsend. And it's published through the Lettered Streets Press. It's a small press. And this tiny little memoir is part prose, part poetry. It's very lyrical in its Mm -hmm. telling. And it's an experience of postpartum psychosis that happened 20 years before. And so the author has written about it in these tiny little fragments. Most of them are less than a page. Some of them a word or a sentence and they're all stitched together in this tapestry that is really like reminiscent both of memory that over the 20-year period mm. of this thing that happened so long ago and of the psychotic experiences being sort of fragmented and and having these moments of intense m- memory. And I just thought it was so beautifully written and I was really thrilled to be able to find it. And I actually got to meet the author and she's lovely and I feel like I've just A new best friend. So (laughs) I highly want to recommend her book. It's called Setting the Wire by Sarah C. Townsend. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And please let us know what you thought about this episode. You can come to thinkhardpodcast.com. You can find our archives. You can leave a comment or question for us there. We've got a little comment form that you can fill out and we'll get that. Please come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thinkhardpodcasts. Please leave a review for us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about us. Thanks to Dan Short, our editor and engineer. You can find him at danisnotshort. Thanks to Ben Sound at bensound.com for the music for today's episode. You can follow Jose Muniz on Twitter at the Muniz. You can follow me, Danielle Sousa, at Danielle Asusa. And you can follow Think Hard at thinkhardpod. That's our show for today, and we'll be back again in two weeks.
1: See ya!